This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin. We have a lot to get to on this podcast. We're going to be talking about buyer's remorse in the housing market. We're going to be chatting about food inflation. So it's a good start, right? Expensive and expensive. Uh, the Commonwealth Games bid was back in front of Hamilton City Council. Where is that going? Mike Weir, golfer Mike Weir, joins us now, a beer guy. Weir beer is a real thing. He's going to be in town this weekend. We'll chat with Mike Weir. Top Gun, the sequel. Unbelievable reviews it's getting. How do you make a good sequel? Well, you do this, but what is this? What's the secret? We'll get into that. And speaking of sequels, Hanson, the band from, you know, the kids, Mbop, way back 30 years ago? Well, they're still going strong. And Taylor Hanson will be joining us to talk about how you keep things going for 30 years in the music business and a morph from being a kid's group to an adult group. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Inflation is rising. Costs of living are heading north. The one thing that is not going up right now, shockingly, especially around here, shockingly, seems to be the price of homes. Things appear to be slowing just a little bit. And this is fantastic if you're trying to get into the market, I assume. If you're looking for a home and you're trying to get onto that escalator, price is going down a tiny bit. That's that's good news. But what if you just got in and all of a sudden you realize the floor has dropped below you? Here's what a Toronto real estate lawyer had to say about this the other day. There's a quote, with today's real estate prices, there's really no option but to go all in. And if you're going all in and then suddenly you're realizing perhaps you made a bad bet and there's a way out of that bet, you're going to do whatever you can to get out. Well, what do you do if you have buyer's remorse? I want to bring in Lou Piriano, president of the Realtor Association of Hamilton Burlington. Lou, how are you this morning? Thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. We are hearing anecdotal stories about this. I don't know how widespread this is right now, but we're hearing anecdotes about people who are buying or did buy at the very, very peak when it was the absolute hottest and now look at things dropping a little and having some buyer's remorse. Have you had, have you seen that? Has that been your experience? Well, I agree with you that it's not prevalent. And uh, the, I think the thing to remember is that real estate is not a, uh, it's not Bitcoin. It's a (laughs) long-term investment. Yeah. Uh, And as such, you know, uh, whether there's a little dip this month or next month, and, and this is all being based on two months. Of statistics, so I think people have to be very cautious that uh, you know we're, we're not uh, uh, you know we're not riding the roller coaster here. We're just seeing a, a normal uh, evening out of the pace, I guess you could say. And, and that's you know your point is absolutely well taken. The flip side of that though is that I mean when when people are following the stock market day to day, I mean we saw what happened yesterday in the stock market, and the, you know the Dow Jones was down over a thousand points, and. Again, you would think that people who buy stocks are in it long term for most people or have RSPs or mutual funds, but we freak out over one day's result. You can see how people, if the market all of a sudden in housing drops by a few percentage points, why they may say, oh man, I just I just got hosed. I got to figure out a way out of this. Well, you know, it, it kind of works the other way around too. If, if you're sitting there and you bought a house last year and prices have increased, uh, you really haven't made any money unless you're going to sell your house. And conversely True. here, you're really not lost any money unless you're going to sell your house today. If so, Okay, so if there was this example, let's say someone did buy recently and, you know, and part of what I think, Lou, back up for a second, part of what also makes this so complicated right now, 
are the numbers of people who we're not just paying the asking price for a home because of all the bidding wars. We're sort of guessing at what amount above asking in some cases you're going to have to put down. So it's, you know, you're, you're putting down a lot of money that maybe more than you intended. So if that happens and you then see that, you know, the house down the street went for way less two weeks later, a month later, is there anything that you can do about it? Or is this just, you know, I bought it and I'm going to live with it. Well, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't want to get too deep into this. But obviously, if, if something was misrepresented, uh, you may have a, a cause of action. That would be a legal question that, you know, talk to your lawyer. But as far as, I mean, you can, in some cases, get out, but there are huge penalties involved, right? Or you could even be sued. Oh, you're talking about your mortgage, not, you're talking about the mortgage itself. No, I'm talking if you, if you put in an offer on a house and it was, and then you said, I got to pull out of this one, oh, there are ways okay. to get out, but you're going to pay for it. Well, I, I don't know of any legal ways to get out if it was a legal and binding contract. And, uh, you know, what typically would happen if there's a default is that uh, we would relist the property, sell the property, and then uh, the owner would be, uh, I'm sorry, the buyer who did not close would be sued for damages uh, as mm. to whatever the loss might have been. Yeah, it's going to cost. It's going to cost for sure. Yeah. So has this, has the fact, when we see the ebbs and flows of the market, and we've really had very few ebbs, we've had a lot of flows over the last few years because it's been so hot around here and so incredibly expensive. When we see a little dip, do we then see a massive surge in numbers of people who suddenly more people even that want to get in? Or do people then say, oh, you know what, if it's on a bit of a downward trajectory, I'm going to hold fire for a minute here and wait and see if it goes down a little bit more? I think it depends on on your motivation for buying. Investors obviously will take a look at it and say, hey, I've got an opportunity now, uh, you know, if, if things cool a bit to get in with uh, a reasonable price and so on. And first-time buyers are looking at it saying, hey, guess what? Now I can put a financing condition in, a home inspection condition in, and that'll be nice. But, you know, it's still a mixed bag. There are still properties out there that are getting multiple offers, as well as properties that are, are sitting there. So uh, clearly you want the help of a professional, one of our members of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington uh, and rab.ca. You can go get a directory of those folks. And, and, and that's where you need advice going forward, because really we go out there every day and we kind of take the temperature of the market. It's not, you know, statistics are great. They tell you what happened, but they don't tell you what's going to happen. So if you really want some advice, you've got to take it neighborhood by neighborhood and realtor by realtor who knows something about that neighborhood. What about sellers, Lou? If, if you're a seller, your experience, what you're seeing now, if sellers all of a sudden think, oh, we're heading into, whether it's a month or two or longer, we're sell, so heading into a little bit of a down time here for prices. Are sellers going to be more reluctant to post right now because they're saying, if I wait a little while, maybe it goes back up and I get more for my house? Yeah, there are certainly those folks out there. But, you know, just like with the stock market, sometimes you chase the market down. So, again, you really need to uh, take the advice of, of somebody who knows what's going on minute to minute or month to month, I guess you could say, not minute to minute. Uh, and, and for that you know, again, it's real estate is long term. So yeah, eventually it will go back up. But you know, do you, do you want to wait that long? And what is your motivation? Are you going to buy something else? Because if you are, that property is going to go up too. So as I say, as long as you're buying and selling in the same market, you're, you're probably not at a loss, whether things are going up or staying the same or going down. 
you are not Kresgen and and I don't expect you to be Kresgen. None of us are, but what's your sense on this? Is this, do, are you getting the sense that this is a blip and, you know, we're going to be right back to where we were in a bit, or do you think we may be in a, you know, a little bit of a cooler period here for a little while? Well, clearly are, clearly we are as long as interest rates uh, remain uh, high or even increased. But uh, the other factors on the other end are increased immigration, uh, pent up demand, so it's, it's very, very tough to see this, you know, tanking, shall we say. Uh, we had a, a, a blip last month on an average home. Averages are very deceiving because there's no such thing as an average house. So once again, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to evade your question, Scott, but uh, I think in the next month or two, we will, you know, you'll see a trend develop that we can, uh, the market will reveal itself as it evolves and, you know, you're better able to judge. Uh, the wild card in these things is always the government. Bank of Canada, right. uh, interest rates, uh, programs that federal and provincial people put out, restrictions that they put out, for example, uh, not going to sell to foreign buyers. You know, th there's so many variables. And that's why I say you really just got to go out and uh, like a sort of like a prairie dog there. We go out and sniff the air and, and, and see what's going on. <laughs> Lou Piriano, president of the Realtor Association of Hamilton Burlington. Thanks so much for the time today. Pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Inflation, you know, inflation is not good right now. Gas is expensive. Everything's expensive. Food inflation, really not good right now. The latest numbers are out in April. 9.7% inflation rate on food. Basically 10% inflation on food. That's uh, that's the largest increase since September of 1981. Want to bring in uh, someone that we like to talk about when we want to talk about problems or issues with food. A guy, I, I, I'm just, I'm so interested to know how many times he's been introduced. It's got to be many, many, many that he's been introduced to a segment with Weird Al's Eat It. It has to be all the time. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. How are you today? Very good. I, I honestly, I, I don't think it has happened a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe five times. Maybe. Oh, I, but, uh, see, I like that song. I like. I'm a big fan of Weird Al Yankovic. Why not? Right. We need we need some levity in our lives these days. Why not? Exactly. So <laughs> look, the idea of food price increases they were an inconvenience for a little while and it was a bit of a pain for a little while. And we don't like paying more for food, but you know, it happens, but now it, boy, these numbers are starting to sound scary. Actually, you know what, Scott, uh, these numbers are starting to sound accurate. <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, and both you and I spoke about this. I think it was last year about uh, StatsCan's accuracy. Uh, we've always believed that uh, that uh, food inflation numbers in Canada uh, underestimated what actually was was really going on at the grocery store. We're actually getting closer and closer to what what consumers are actually seeing at the grocery store. And uh, in recent uh, in recent months, uh, you we have seen Satscan uh, increasing the number of food products in their food basket. And honestly, Scott, I know the numbers are scary, but it's starting to reflect exactly what's happening in the grocery store. So, so we're from a methodological perspective, we're pleased that uh, finally the federal agency is is giving the the real story. But at the same time, of course, we're still dealing with a with a with a huge food inflation problem. So, if we've if you and other people, other experts have said, look, the inflation rate for food is a lot higher than is being reflected for some time now. 
why have the numbers been so why why would stats can not listen or why would we have seen the numbers not be accurate before this what's taken them so long to get around to as you say putting more foods in to get a better sample well i think there's a, there's a culture at uh, stats can uh, like a science culture uh, it it's it will. It's all about science, but at the same time, I, I, I'm not sure they've they've been open to uh, to uh, outside criticism. But we have met with them, and uh, I, I think really they they've started to listen. Uh, so I, I'm I'm giving them some credit this morning <laughs> for once, uh, and I think that the, the way that they're actually approaching uh, food inflation, I'm, and I'm not talking about other components of the CPI. I'm just looking at food here. With sure. food, I think they're doing a better job. And, and I think it has to, a lot to do with the fact that uh, they, they've spoken to outside stakeholders like us. Is there, and I, I hate to ask this question, I'm, I'm scared to ask this question because I think I know what the answer is going to be, but is there any reason to think that the inflation around food is not going to just continue to rise for the next while? Yeah, so I obviously yesterday I was asked that question a lot. Uh, people are hoping for for the best, but the thing is, uh, Scott, uh, we're looking at uh, uh, a sequence of events and 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 elements that just uh, are pushing prices higher, and it's going to last for a while. We're we're at the end of the first period here. If you're if you're if you if you were to use a hockey game as an analogy, we're just we're just starting a new cycle as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. And of course, the the thing that's happening right now, which is actually not going to help, uh, is is this uh, phenomena that I call nationalistic uh, protectionism. Uh, we're seeing more countries panicking and hoarding food. Uh, India this week decided to stop uh, exporting wheat. A few weeks ago, it was Indonesia with palm oil. Uh, that's only going to continue because uh, we are looking at a global food security crisis uh, in many parts of the world. Canada will be spared, of course. Uh, we're a rich country. We can buy our way out of a food security problem. But uh, prices are going to go up no matter what. There have been some suggestions, Sylvain, that um, when you look at earnings uh, reports from certain big uh, grocery stores and supermarket chains that inflation is part of this, but that some of these supermarkets are gouging and taking advantage of this. Is that the case? Is, is that a fair thing to say that this is a moment when some places are using inflation to hide raised prices to increase profits? On Monday, I was actually testifying uh, before the Standing Committee in Finance in Ottawa, uh, and uh, I can't for, I, I forget which MP actually asked me the question, but he asked me the same exact question you're asking now: Is there gouging going on? And my answer uh, was that we don't know. Uh, parts of parts of the inflation can be easily explained by like a variety of factors. There, there are tons of reasons why food prices are going up. But there are anomalies. For example, when you look at uh, the data that came out yesterday, uh, some, some beef cuts have increased by over 50% in three months. 50%. While chicken and pork are cheaper since December. So there are there are some issues here that that I'm very concerned about. I so 50 percent uh, I can explain. Yeah, absolutely. 
feeding cattle is more expensive, but we're not feeding them caviar either. It's just, <laughs> there's, there's something going on there. So we're actually looking into this right now, uh, Scott. Uh, we're looking at uh, financials uh, from grocers. We're looking upstream. But in Canada, we don't have the luxury of, of having data transparency like in the U.S. In the U.S., it's pretty easy to really connect the dots and see whether or not there's abuse. In Canada, it's much more difficult. It takes months to really realize whether or not there's gouging. Like what we saw with bread a few years ago. And now there's there are accusations related to beef prices in both Quebec and, and BC right now. Maybe that's an idea. Maybe you're onto something. It's your new million dollar idea: feed cattle caviar to be like our wagyu beef that we can uh, <laughs> we can now have the 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 world's greatest tasting beef. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, food professor, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Roughly eight years before the 100th anniversary of the British Empire Games. That would be in 2030. Which is why there has been so much talk for the last number of years about getting the Commonwealth Games in 2030. The British Empire Games were 1930, right? That's what I said. Anyway, it's early. But 2030 would be the 100th anniversary, and that's why there's been so much talk about bringing the Centennial Games here to Hamilton. The question is, does the city want it? Is the city willing to pay for it? How much is the city willing to pay for it? How much would the city need to pay for it? There's a lot of questions. And the committee for the Commonwealth 100 group was at Hamilton City Council in front of the General Issues Committee yesterday trying to answer a number of those. Lou Fraporti is a spokesperson for the Hamilton 100 team. He joins us now. Lou, how are you this morning? Great. Great to be back. Uh, listen, I really appreciate you doing this. I wonder if you can take a moment to give us a sort of an update on the, the pitch has changed over time. So when you were at council yesterday, what, what is the pitch now? What is the committee looking for from the city? Well, the pitch changed over time as a consequence of a few things, including a pandemic that affected the world and a realization that the games as they were proposed by us in Hamilton and approved initially by council were too expensive. Uh, and weren't really focused on what was immediately needed in the community. So we've refashioned the game in consultation with a variety of stakeholders and groups, organizations, to make it much more modest in scope. We've regionalized it. And because we're nearing the end of the domestic part of this process in advance of a potential international bid, we wanted to come back to council to get clarity around an agreement that would see the city municipally be part of what's called a multi-party agreement negotiation with senior levels of government should the province of Ontario decide to move forward with the bid. And the vote yesterday was for the purposes of negotiating that agreement, which would position the city forward. The agreement doesn't provide for any commitment to funding at all. What it does is it sets a framework for discussion uh, so that discussions with senior levels of government around how much and who's paying could be worked out collaboratively. You used the word regional, regional, regionalized there. What what does that mean? Is the idea that it's less focused entirely in Hamilton and more in Hamilton and the area around us? As a practical matter, yes. One of the things that came out of the work that we were doing post-pandemic was a realization that any single city purporting to host something this significant carried significant risk. And further, that we wanted to really regionalize the benefits and impacts of the games across the region, having Hamilton as a center, certainly the heart of the Commonwealth Games, 
But in this particular case, drawing upon the investments and in communities that surround Hamilton, uh, that have wonderful assets that should be internationally so showcased. And we began a many multi-month process of working with mayors and community leaders from Milton to Niagara to Kitchener, Waterloo to invite them to um, commit venues, either existing or to be built that would be included in the games bid. And that's what's going to be presented to senior levels of government shortly. And is part of that, and you mentioned venues, I mean, is part of this that the original vision of this was going to leave and create a bunch of venues, but the cost of that is now prohibitive. So we have to move it regionally to take advantage of some of the venues that exist because we're not going to be building a whole lot of new ones? That's fair. When we originally went down this road, we, we obviously, as many games proponent do, have a grand vision of the infrastructure that we want to leave behind. We quickly became aware of the fact that that was impractical, wasn't a sensible uh, spend of taxpayer money, and that the senior levels of government didn't really have an appetite for spending significant amounts of money on new infrastructure, particularly where prior investments could be used. And good examples of that would be the Milton Velodrome. And so we began a process uh, of looking at the region, the assets that currently exist, working with private sector partners who were proposing to build assets that could be venues so that we could create a plan that, that made very good use of stuff that had already been created, that was going to lean very heavily on the private sector and the projects that they hoped to fold into the bid at their expense, mind you, and to have a very light touch over any new assets that might be necessary. And in the end, the submission that we'll provide to the province uh, has a massive reduction in what was the original infrastructure spend. I think it's very economical, very prudent, and I, I think we'll be well received if it moves forward. The challenge I would think as I'm listening to this um, is that one of the things that every bid committee of any games always comes forward with is the idea of here's the legacy that we're going to leave after this. And I'm wondering what then, if it's not a lot of new infrastructure or new facilities, what is the legacy that this games would leave? Or is that not as important now because that's not the intent anymore? Well, it, actually, it's critically important in a couple of ways. And we spent an enormous amount of time thinking about that. Our primary legacy will be a new approach to how games are, are put on. That legacy will be about making the games more sustainable, about making the games more focused on immediate community needs, about um, spreading out essentially the impacts and benefits of the games by focusing on the human capital rather than the actual infrastructure. That we think is going to be a more compelling legacy for the Commonwealth Games going forward. I know that you, you just said a moment ago and, and what this was at, uh, at council and it's always the concern is, okay, how much money is this going to cost? Now you said that you were not asking for a specific commitment, but there, there's going to be, there has to be some kind of cost to the city if this was to happen. Do we know what the city or, or even roughly what Hamilton would be on the hook for, for games, even the, the new description that you've offered for this? Do we know what that amount might be? Well, no, not exactly, but I can give you sort of a frame of reference to understand this. So clearly there's a global budget for the event itself, which is the hosting budget. It's comprised of programming costs, which are incurred in the year in which the event happens, 2030. And then, of course, there are capital costs that are associated. As I said, those have been very significantly reduced in terms of proposals, and those don't involve the city of Hamilton having to spend anything as it currently stands, including any amount for housing. You may recall that we were talking about a very ambitious affordable housing plan that is not being put forward as part of the initial proposal. 
what Hamilton might be invited to spend in conversation with senior levels of government down the road is entirely a function of what those stakeholders decide might be added to the current games bid that would reflect community needs. So for example, if senior leaders in Hamilton and uh, the province and federal government were of the view that they wanted to create a village that would have housing inventory left behind, it's open for them to make that decision and then address who's paying for what at that table. We're not obliging in the current bid proposal, which is very modest for them to do that, but we're inviting them and have created the conditions for them to have that conversation. There's going to be some cost, obviously, uh, in terms of the running of the event in 2030, but if Pan Am is a model for that, the overwhelming majority of municipal costs were assumed by the provincial government by way of transfer payments, and we expect that model to, to uh, avail here. Mm. It's, uh, it's an interesting discussion that we'll be continuing uh, for sure. Lou Fraporti uh, with Hamilton 100, the Commonwealth Games bid team. Lou, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Wonderful. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Saturday evening, coming up this Saturday evening, my next guest will be at Sean and Ed Brewing, uh, Brewing in Dundas for the official launch of Weir Beer. That's Weir as in Mike, as in Canada's greatest ever golfer. And now to some degree... I guess a beer baron, Mike Weir. How are you today? Thanks for doing this. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. No problem. Yeah. I don't know if beer baron's quite uh, quite there yet, but uh, we'll work on it. Well, I, I thought it was either this or going to hard liquor and call it like Master Blaster or something. And, uh, you know, <laughs> well, that, that'll be the next step, going to the hard liquor world here. Um, listen, I, I told a few people that you were going to be coming to town on Saturday and you were going to be having an event here. And I got to tell you, whenever your name gets mentioned, there is still genuine excitement about you and especially from golf fans up here. It's, it's got to be a great thing when you know you can walk into pretty much any room around here and people are glad to see you. It's a rare thing, but it's got to be great. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a great feeling. And, um, you know, I feel the same. I've been blessed to have a, a great career and um, the Canadian fans have supported me from my Canadian tour days to the PGA tour days through net for now on the, on the champions tour. And, um, you know, pretty lucky guy to have uh, that kind of support. Is it the same everywhere or is it mostly when you come home? Is it more pronounced when you're back in Canada? It's definitely more pronounced when I'm, when I'm back in Canada, but I get, I get recognized quite a bit. Uh, now, you know, I think, you know, Augusta and, and the masters kind of travel as well. I mean, <laughs> I think people, people, uh, from around the world, the United States and around the world, uh, kind of, kind of know, if you, especially if you're a golf fan, know who uh, the master champions are. And, and I mean, as I say, that that's a wonderful thing to be someone who brings happiness to people just by showing up. But at the same time, I wonder, has it ever felt over the last 19 years now, has it ever felt a, like a lot to be the face of golf in Canada and to have that responsibility? Well, I would say at, some, at certain points in my career, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, being the type of person I am being, you know, maybe a bit uh, shy and, and, you know, I think I've come out of my shell a little bit uh, the last few years, but um, someone who's more reserved and, and likes to keep to themselves, that's, it's a lot to, to handle. Um, and, but I've learned to embrace it. I, I, I worked hard to embrace that and I've always appreciated, but sometimes it felt, uh, it felt a little bit difficult uh, at certain points in my life, but um, for the most part, it's all been great the pressure on the course you mean to succeed and to carry that or the pressure knowing that everywhere you go, there's eyeballs on you now because of who uh, you are and what you've done. 
I think more of the pressure on the course and the expectations. And, and, um, I think, you know, I think that, you know, carried weight, um, when I played more than, um, more than the other stuff. I think, I think that's what I, I needed to deal with. And I think, you know, the Canadian guys have to deal with that. You know, you're, you're, you're one of thousands in the United States, but you're only one of a few in Canada Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. tension gets put on you and the expectations get put on you, um, at a higher degree than the, the average PGA tour player. Um, so I think that's, that's something that was an ever evolving thing for me to kind of learn how to deal with and, and manage. You are still uh, playing in masters. You will, I presume until they have to like cart you off the course, you'll probably do that as long as you possibly can. And you're playing some other PGA tour events, but a lot of what you're doing now is on the champions tour. Mm-hmm. How is that different? Well, the champions, it's, it's not a lot different. I mean, you know, you know, the competitive fire and nature is, it still burns with all of us out there on the champions tour. The guys work hard on their games. It's still very difficult to win. Guys are shooting really low scores in, in three and mostly three round tournaments, but you know, probably a half a dozen four round tournaments that we have out there. And so you have to score. Yes. Yeah? So that means you gotta, you gotta wedge it great. You have to putt great and you have to put a lot of time in. Um, the big difference between the PGA tour and the regular tour is obviously the power and the distance that the guys hit it. Um, but outside of that, the, I've said all along, like the skill shots, shots around the greens and putting and everything is still at a very, very high level compare comparable to the, to the regular tour. And, um, but I would say that, you know, the, the camaraderie amongst the guys and, um, there's a, a bit of lightheartedness that's, you know, it's like I said, still super competitive, but it's a little more lighthearted out there on the mm-hmm. champions tour and uh, guys pal around maybe a little bit more than uh, the regular tour. And you mentioned about, you know, winning. I mean, last year you won an event. It, it had been a little while since you'd had that. Does it still feel the same when you win years later? Oh yeah. Yeah. It feels, feels fantastic to feel those uh, butterflies and the, feel the adrenaline you get when you're in contention, you know, coming down the last, last nine holes or so. And, um, when you, when you pull off and execute the shots under pressure is, is always a great feeling when you, uh, can execute and, and win, uh, under the gun like that. All right. Let's get to this beer thing for a second. Beer Baron or not. Um, we now, Weir beer is coming out and I've tried it. It's actually is really good. Um, how did you find your way into the beer business? Well, you know, kind of came organically. I, I knew Ed through the wine business, uh, years ago and, um, the opportunity kind of came up and I think now with, you know, kind of my lifestyle and fitness and health and, and trying to uh, create something that, that, that fits authentically with, with kind of who I am. And, um, you know, that's, that's how it came up. We want to come out with a, a lighter lager or something that you could drink and not feel too heavy. And you could have a couple and not, uh, you know, feel it, uh, in your, in your gut, so to speak, so heavy. And, uh, um, you know, and that's the kind of beer I enjoy. I enjoy a lighter beer, um, something that's, uh, you know, you, you drink a lot of water on the golf course most of the time, but after you want something a little different and a lot of, a lot of people like them while they're playing too, but, um, you know, that's kind of <laughs> how I enjoy them is kind of more after the round. Um, so that, that's how it all kind of started. And then it, you know, it kind of came down to, you know, Sean and Ed come up with a, a product that I liked and I had a lot of friends and family trying it. I tried it and, uh, we kind of went back and forth and settled on, um, on this brew and I'm super happy with it. I think it's great. Um, nice and light, but has great, great flavor, a lot more than some of the other light beers out there. 
I was going to say, you say usually after, when was the last time Mike Weir cracked one on the, a cold one on the course during a round? I mean, it happens occasionally when I'm, I'm home playing with friends. It'll happen this summer after the Canadian Open when I'm uh, playing golf with my dad and my brothers uh, on a week vacation that we're doing together for my mother's 80th birthday. So there'll be a few cracked uh, that week, but uh, other than that, you know, not, not, not often on the golf course. Do, do the guys who are on tour, who have you known for years, when they hear that there is now weird beer, does everyone sort of leave a note in your stall saying, yeah, I expect the case <laughs> to be showing up. I expect to try this stuff. I'm getting a lot of that. Uh, when can we get it here? And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Maybe, maybe it'll uh, catch on and we'll get it down uh, to the guys in the U S here as well. Well, look, it, it seems like it's a, the perfect kind of mix. And, and as you say, with, with your lifestyle and with everything you're doing and with your name up here, I mean, I, I can't believe that this thing is not going to be uh, to be a huge success. And, and I, I did try it and I'm not just blowing smoke to tell you it, it, it is very good. I think people are really going to like it. Um, you are here in Hamilton uh, in Dundas this Saturday for this event to kick it off. And then what is the rest of the season looking like for Mike Weir? Yeah. So I'll be up there Saturday uh, at the brewery and then, um, we play our, our senior PGA in Benton Harbor, Michigan the following week. Uh, so I'll be heading over uh, for that event. And then, um, and then uh, there's a week off, I believe. And then, um, well, there is an event in the Champions Tour, which I won't be playing. And then the Canadian, Canadian back up to Toronto for the Canadian Open at St. George's um, the second week of June. So a couple big events coming up. And then we have our U.S. Senior Open and the British Senior Open. So some big events and uh, for me in the next six, seven weeks. So be pretty busy. Absolutely. Well, listen, that is, uh, that is Mike Weir. Uh, he will be in town in Dundas. I don't know if there are tickets available. You can go to Sean and Ed Brewery, look online. I'm sure you can uh, find the information there, but uh, Mike really appreciate the time. and look forward to seeing you on the weekend. Yeah. Looking forward to it. See you then. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Top Gun Maverick is coming out in a few days. The sequel. It is getting unbelievable reviews. Let me read just a line from one or two of these here. Entertaining, intense, and surprisingly rich with emotion. Top Gun Maverick is the perfect summer movie. Uh, it goes on and on. There is it's just every reviewer on, on Rotten Tomatoes, All they've got 97, I think, reviews, all but three raving about this one. I, I did not expect necessarily that this was going to be the movie that was going to make the reviewers lose their minds but hey love surprises right let me bring in robert thompson he is a trustee professor of television radio and film and the director of the blyer center for television and popular culture at syracuse university he joins us now thank you so much as always for joining us thanks for having me would this have been the movie that you would have anticipated before we saw the reviews that the reviewers were going to love like this? Or would you have said, ah, you know, summer fizz, just, you know, fun, but nothing real, really special. They love this. Yeah, not in 36 years did I ever dream that uh, uh, it can. It would get a standing ovation and a special uh, uh, award. Uh, this is Maverick. Back when I saw this, when I was just getting out of graduate school, it was a fun movie, but it was also a movie that we kind of uh, made a little fun of as well. Right, because it was sort of everything that an action movie, it was like a, a an exaggeration of everything in an action movie. You had to have the love story that was ridiculous in some ways. You had to have fast cars, fast motorcycle, fast... It was all the stereotypes, but you know, it was okay. It was, it was as I say, sort of summer sizzle, but it was nothing that was deep or anything this one they they say hey there's even emotion there's real stuff here 
Yeah, exactly. That first one, and, and I don't mean to say anything bad. That first one was, it was a fun movie. Uh, but you're right. It was it checked off all of the things in the over the top. Uh, I enjoyed watching the first gun, uh, the first Top Gun movie. Uh, I never thought it was. Uh, I mean, now this sequel is being taught talked about like Citizen Kane. Well, <laughs> not quite. No. But okay, so let's go there for a second because one thing we know, and I don't think we're just sort of generalizing. Most, most, not all, most sequels are kind of a dog's breakfast. The it's the studios that have seen that a movie has made them a ton of money, and so they say, "Well, hey, I don't really care if it's artistically valid. We can make a ton more money with a sequel, so let's do it." What, what's the what's the secret to making a good sequel that's more than just a money maker? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. There have been some uh, really bad sequels, and the whole idea of a sequel, you're right, can be just the idea of squeezing some more uh, dollars out of it. But there's also been some really, really fine sequels as well. And in some cases, I think the, the movie gets to uh, ferment and uh, the ideas get to develop in sequels. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I think most people think that the sequel to The Godfather was the best of uh, what was already a really, really uh, good movie. And for that matter, the uh, second sequel as well, Godfather 3. Uh, the same could be said of uh, the Toy Story sequels, which I think uh, 2 and 3 in many ways exceeded uh, the, the first two. And I suppose you could go back to um, uh, the New Testament. That was a pretty successful sequel, and that <laughs> came many, 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 many years after the original. Well, okay, so just as you brought this up, so Rotten Tomatoes, they do they allow people to grade it. So this is the public speaking. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this list, and you've done pretty well with what's on there. The top 10 sequels of all time. This is people voting on this one. Number oh, 10, Mission, Mission Impossible Fallout. 97% love that one. That's number 10. Toy Story 4, you got that one. And the Toy Story, number 9. Bride of Frankenstein, number 8 from 1935. The Godfather Part... The Godfather Part 2 in 1974, I'm surprised it's as low as number 7 because it's often said it's the greatest, as you've said. Number 6 is Before Midnight from 2013. Number 5, Toy Story 3. Number 4, Goldfinger from 1964. Every Bond movie essentially is a sequel other than Dr. No. Uh, number 3, best sequels of all time, Three Colors Red. That is number 3. Number 2 is Toy Story 2. Again, number one, did not see this one coming, Robert. Uh, number two, with a 99% Rotten Tomatoes score, the greatest sequel of all time, Paddington 2. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, Paddington always gets his paw into, uh, uh, into these things. Um, well, you know, a lot of those, I think, were that, that, that's a, a, a pretty good list. I'm not sure that the Bond movies I would necessarily call sequels. Um, in that uh, that was kind of a franchise based on a bunch of books right off the uh, uh, right off the bat, but the rest of those I think were pretty good. Um, I don't think you mentioned uh, Aliens. I think Aliens was a better uh, sequel than the original, and those uh, spaghetti westerns, uh, uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, was the best of those three. So, uh, Robert, know, good, good call. Good call. You know, so Aliens was number 12 and Good, Bad, and the Ugly was number 13, just outside the list. So you know what you're talking about. Oh, but, right, about, up, right up. About the sequels. I guess I and, agree with whoever's answering this Rotten Tomatoes thing. There you go. 
The the difference though, and and it's an interesting thing that you say because some are not really sequels; they're a franchise. That's why I think Lord of the Rings; those were books that were written way ahead. They weren't really; it's not really a sequel. It's a it's a follow up, exactly. I suppose, but not quite the same. Does it help that in some cases, or does it hurt that people know the background of these things? And I don't mean with the the franchise; I mean in sequels. Top Gun, for example, the fact that we all well. Maybe we don't all know. It's 30 years. Do Maybe let me rephrase the question. Do you think people now who are going know the Top Gun story, or does that even matter? Is it simple enough that even if you never saw it, if you're only 20 years old, is it still fine to jump in? And even if you've never seen the first one to catch on? Well, that all depends, I suppose, on the uh, execution. I think if it's a really good movie, it, it doesn't matter. That transcends uh, everything else. Um, with with Top Gun, when you've got uh, this was 1986, so a lot a lot of time has passed uh, since the first one. I think the expectation is that you are going to get uh, you have to get for this to be successful a whole new audience, uh, which includes some who may have seen Top Gun on streaming or back in the day on a VHS tape or a, a DVD. Um, but you may I think the expectation is a lot of people, including a lot of my students, I suspect are going to see Top Gun Maverick as the first Top Gun they ever see. And that if they like it, they may go back to the uh, other one. And that's, of course, exactly what they want. The other thing, of course, is all those people for whom Top Gun was a generational movie or that mm. they loved back in the first place. Uh, the notion is that they're all holding their breath uh, for that as well. And, you know, this is the same with reboots. Uh, uh, reboots also have some great reboots and some terrible reboots, but the uh, expectation there too is that some, an awful lot of people who love the wonderful reboot of Battlestar Galactica had never ever seen the really bad original movie of Battle or original series of Battlestar Galactica. We got to run, but to the one other thing that I think a lot of the studios are banking on, this is one that all the critics are saying, hey, great movie, but you must see it in a theater. This is not one you can watch on your phone or even on your 50-inch. You've got to go where it's immersive. Um, here's one one review. If you're comfortable seeing a movie theatrically, find the theater closest to you with the biggest screen, Christmas sound, and prepare to have your face melted off. Top Gun Maverick <laughs> is a triumph. There you go. It is. Uh, look yeah, at that's that. what so, movies are doing. you got to get back in the theater. Avatar is going to be the same way. It's why we've got all these Marvel movies. Also, Robert Thompson, uh, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse. Always love having you. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are not a lot of bands these days that make it to 30 years as a band. Um, we've all seen the documentaries. We've all seen how bands, you know, everything happens. Well, 30 years. It's a long, long time to be working together with the same people. But my next guest and his brothers have made 30 years. They are Hanson and Taylor Hanson joins me now. Taylor, thanks for doing this. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Thanks so much. You know, when I told some people today, because we're up in, in Canada, we're up in hockey country, I said, I'm going to be talking to one of the Hanson brothers today. <laughs> yes, yes. And it was like, there was some confusion and I had to clarify, no, not the Slapshot guys, the, you know, Hanson. The, I mean, please tell me you've seen that movie, though. Oh, uh, you know, it's amazing. The legend of the Hanson brothers, the hockey brothers, has followed us since our early days. Um, I got to give it to them. They've That is... That really made such a large impression. I, it's kind of an incredible. Um, we have crossed paths a couple of times, but um, yep, early early on, we 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 actually sang the national anthem at a couple sporting events, and more than once, people thought that the <laughs> halftime performance was coming from the hockey brothers. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been been part of our uh, our story somewhere along the way. Because you guys were originally called the Hanson Brothers, right? Well, being brothers, we were often <laughs> yeah. called the Hanson Brothers, even if we didn't call ourselves that. So it it th- there's an easy confusion there. So of course we're actually brothers. So um, there you go, there you go. Listen, when I heard that you guys were celebrating, because I I mean, look, you've been around forever, and and you know you don't think about it. When I heard you were celebrating your 30th anniversary as a band, um, I'll tell you the 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 first feeling I had was, my goodness, am I old? Uh, that it's been 30 <laughs> years. That's a it that's a that. long time to keep up with one band with with the brothers to do the same thing. It's a long time. It is. Yeah. Well, it, it, it does that to everybody. I mean, it, it, it part of sharing that and saying that loud is, it's, it almost kind of a, it's a, a shocking and, and sort of curiosity sparking conversation. Like, well, how can that be possible? Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lifetime and, you know, it's 25 years since most people were introduced to the band um, since Mbop was released in middle of nowhere. And so we've been on the world stage for 25 years and playing music together since we were even younger, five years before that. So you know, so much of a long career, anybody that's had a career in any path or for that matter, a relationship where you, you, you've, you've lived multiple lives, you've lived, mm. you know, different eras, you've gone through different seasons. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the things that, that when you look at the whole as one swath, you go, that's, that seems unbelievable. But when you look at it in chapters and you look at it launching as a band, getting signed, launching a first record, building a label and, you know, then, you know, developing kind of different aspects of your career, you go, oh, yeah, there were all these these layers. And then you turn around and, wow, it's been decades. So we're, we're definitely proud of sort of surviving the, the highs, the lows and everything in between. You don't really have anything to compare it to as context, but do you think it's easier to do it with your brothers or, cause I mean, a lot of people would say, you know what to do with you, you're going to kill each other. I mean, that's what, that's what brothers do along the way. Is it, do you think it's easier or harder when it's your brothers you're working with all the time? Well, like you said, it's, it's no, you don't really have context. You can only really speak to your own experiences authentically, but I would, I would guess it's, um, it's a trade-off either way. There's certainly benefits to having family. I mean, there's a connection, you know, we, we sing together, we started off harmonizing. And I think harmony is something that's truly with the family. There's something really powerful that comes with singing together because your voices are truly connected. You know, you, you have that, that natural connection that, that causes the voices to really connect like friends can never do. Um, so I think that that's one really powerful aspect of being family. Um, but no, nobody's got a, a, a magic wand. I mean, you just having a common vision, having something that you can work towards. Um, I think it's hard to keep anything together, um, you know, for significant periods of time, especially in the creative field where it's all about inventing things, making things, you you know, nobody's, it's not just getting hired to be a good plumber, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, hopefully build it, you know, I, you know, I'm an attorney and I'm providing this service, you know, and I'm doing it with my, you know, Hanson, Hanson and Hanson, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's art, it's, it's audiences, it's, you know, and so I think more than anything, our, our focus has just really been to continue to make things that we're proud of. And, um, and also to define success, not by based on everyone else, but to really say, Hey, this, this is what we want. We want to control our destiny. We want to have a fan base that's strong. We want to be able to tour everywhere we can. Um, not, not to chase hits, to believe in, you know, the possibilities of hits, of course, but to, to really kind of go, Hey, this is what we're about. We want to be here for 30 years. You know, you, you mentioned your audience and let's go there for a second because you, you've been doing it for 30 years. You've got a new, I think it's an 80 city tour coming up. You've got a new album out this weekend, by the way, coming to Toronto on August 3rd for that 80 city tour, uh, a new album coming out. Um, 
you know what? I imagine that, well, you started as kids and I imagine it's got to be a challenge somehow. And you've somehow successfully navigated this to move from that to being adult musicians from a, from a teen band, to adult musicians. That, that seems like it would be a really hard thing to do for a lot of people. Well, it is challenging. Yeah. I, I would never say it's not hard. Um, it's incredibly difficult. And, um, but anything really in my experience, that's especially good, uh, oftentimes it's difficult. So, um, I would put it in the category of worth, you know, worth the effort. And of course you have to keep re- reevaluating things and asking, you know, why you're doing it and give yourself a good reason. I I've, I've never really been able to, to not make things that I'm proud of. I mean, sort of, that's one of the sort of safe safety nets is, you know, you don't make something that you wouldn't do for 10 people at the same time as doing it for 10 million people. So I think that that's a huge thing. It, um, and having kind of kind of a healthy stubbornness, honestly, that that kind of fortitude to just say, you know, I'm going to tell you this one more time. I'm going to keep telling my story. And but and you guys also, tell it differently now. Like yeah. when you play Mbop, it sounds it's a different song now than it was when it was a teen pop song. It's got a more mature. It's, it's a different feel to it now. <laughs> well, it's a different key for one. <laughs> um, it's definitely it's a little bit lower. Um, you know, Mbop is a really interesting song because it um, it's a song we wrote and it was a song, if, if you dig in, you know, people, it really has some kind of weight to it as a story about sort of deciding to take things on and deciding to be different and realizing that, you know, we were seeing our friends kind of go separate from us as we chose a path early on to be in a band and not do what everybody else was doing. And that song kind of tells a little bit of that story. And here we are 30 years later um, from starting the band and you go, wow. It, that one actually does hold up and it has evolved, but all the songs evolve. I mean, nothing stands still. So it's really just whether you keep putting yourself into it. I think the album is out this week. The album is called, it's called red, green, blue. And each of you are took a color, like explain how that works. We only have a few seconds here, but each of you have a yes. part of that that you wrote yourself. Yeah. So the record's almost like three solar projects, put together each of us wrote and produced a third. Um, it really highlights the differences, you know, the creative voices uh, of the band. And um, you hear just a different aspect of the band. I think it's just another way to keep it fresh and, and hopefully fans will discover something that they really love. Uh, so the album is out this week. The concert tour is starting at Toronto, as I say, on August 3rd, Taylor Hanson. Listen, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.